I wanted to begin by promoting something that Tom, who was leading music today, did this past week. The, we have basically two goals when we're thinking about our worship music on a Sunday. Uh, and those two goals or those two things that we think about when evaluating what we're going to sing and how we're going to sing it is, is it sound and is it singable? So is the song sound? In other words, are the lyrics good? Are they true? Are they rich? Are they saying things about God that God wants to hear? And then the other side, of course, is that we're here to sing together. It's very different from you singing in your car or singing in the shower, or walking down the hall and singing in your house. So I would hope you would do it here with the same intensity. But we want to be able to sing together congregationally. So if a song isn't singable, it makes it difficult. Well, some of the songs that we sing here are tough to sing. Right? Some of you have noticed that. If you didn't grow up in, you know, in choir or, or orchestra, I didn't. We called it the Dorchestra. If you grew up with that, then you're going to have a difficult time singing some of the songs that we sing. Um, so I have a confession to make. I emailed Tom this last week and I said, you know, last time you led worship, you did this song, Alas, and did my Savior bleed. And I just think that song is too difficult to sing. I don't think it's singable. Uh, I didn't really hear anybody singing, and I don't think you should do it again. I, sw- I felt bad later after saying that to him. But then what, what Tom did is he did what m- most of our music leaders do, and he posted on, uh, in the members group on CCB. So this is also a plug to become a member because this is useless to you if you're not a member yet. But if you're a member in that members group, what our music leaders typically do when there's a song coming up, they, they post like a YouTube link where you can go and listen to the song. Now, I don't know how many of you actually do that, but I, I hadn't done that before. He posted that song. I listened to it twice. So it took like six minutes out of my schedule this week. I took six minutes to listen to that song, to follow that link. And this morning, my you know, experience for what that matters was totally different in singing that song. I was prepared to sing it. I was ready to sing it. I could sing it and not worry so much about how I sounded and and do what we're supposed to be doing, and that is to worship God. Another one is He Will Hold Me Fast, which the first time I heard it was difficult. Listen to it a couple times, and it's my favorite song that we do right now. So I would encourage you, if you're not already, when our music leaders post those songs, go and, and listen to them. So Tom, I take everything back that I said in the email. Not the first time. Okay, uh, let's begin. Uh, I think we had a a misunderstanding, and I should have caught it and alerted it, you know, to Josh right away. I missed it. But the text on the front of your bulletin is not the entire sermon text. Actually, I'm going to be preaching through Ecclesiastes 9, chapter 10 through 11, verse 6. So I hope you brought dinner. And so we need to read that entire text. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to begin by reading through that. Bear with me. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 10. And I'm going to read all the way through chapter 11, verse 6. If you want to follow along, it's on page 359 of the church Bibles. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift nor the battle to the strong, 
nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city, yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard and quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench, so a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in and through indolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens life and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king. Nor in your bedroom curse the rich, for a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. Cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves on the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, there it will lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. And he who regards the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. So you do not know the work of God who makes everything. In the morning, sow your seed. And at evening, withhold not your hand. For you do not know which will prosper, this or that. Or whether both alike will be good. This is the word of God. The best way to divide up and understand the book of Ecclesiastes is not obvious. The chapter and verse markers in the book of Ecclesiastes are not very helpful, which is okay to say. 
because those divisions are, are not inspired by God. In fact, the chapter assignments that you find in your Bible were not assigned until 1205. And I think the verses came about a century later. Side note, can you imagine trying to have a discussion about the Bible or trying to lead a study of the Bible without those chapter and verse assignments? I would have to say something this morning like, please open your Bibles to about three quarters of the way through Ecclesiastes. So they're helpful. It's helpful typically to have these chapters and verses, but all that to say, we're not bound to them. They're not inspired. The best way to divide up and understand the book of Ecclesiastes, and I've said this before, is to divide it up into four sections. Okay, this is what Walter Kaiser, former president of Gordon-Conwell Seminary, proposed in his 2013 commentary. And he was helped by an article in the Princeton Review in 1857. And, and that author was persuaded by J.I. Weihinger in 1849, who came up with the idea of dividing this book into these four sections to be helpful in study. So we are in the fourth section, only three sermons to go. And according to Walter Kaiser, here is the author's intention in this last section of the book. In this final section, we are given practical advice and taught how to apply the insights gained from this new perspective on life set forth in the previous three sections. The righteous must be encouraged lest the puzzles that still remain in the mystery of God are allowed to dishearten them. So here's what he is saying, and he's right. By the time we get to this point in the book, Solomon has given us a new perspective on life. That's what he's done in this book up until this point. He's given us a, a new lens to look through, a realistic, shockingly realistic perspective on life. And now, in the final section, he offers encouragement and practical advice. Now, in case you've forgotten, here is the new, unexpected shockingly realistic perspective on life that Solomon has given. Life is what? Vanity. Life is vanity. Yet, God is sovereign over all things. And He gives His people the power to find Joy in the vanity. That is a new perspective on life that Solomon has put forward in the first three sections. He'll bring it up again today and then move on to practical advice and encouragement. So if you're taking notes today, those might be the outline headings in your notes. Perspective. Advice, encouragement. But first, we should pray together before I preach this sermon. So will you please bow your heads with me? 
Our Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to read and to think and by your grace understand. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you haven't already, open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 9. Again, if you're using one of our church Bibles, you'll find it on page 359. Perspective, advice, encouragement. We find all of these in our text. So let's begin with perspective. Perspective on life. Solomon, for those of you who have been here or are familiar with this book, Solomon does not say... Life is good. He never says anything like that. Solomon does not say life is beautiful. Solomon does not say life is an adventure. Solomon says unexpectedly life stinks. Life is the pits. Life is vanity. He says there is nothing inherently good in this life. There's like a label on everything in your life that says enjoyment not included. So whether you agree with that or disagree with that, 33 plus times Solomon says in this book that that is his perspective on what life is. Life is vanity. And in our text today, Solomon focuses on one particular vain quality of life, uncertainty. Uncertainty. Life is uncertain. Life is unpredictable. There's a song by country songwriter Thomas Rhett called Life Changes. I like the song partly because it mentions adoption, but the song is about the unpredictability of life. So here's the chorus. Ain't it funny how life changes? You wake up, ain't nothing the same. You can't stop it. Just hop on the train. You never know what's going to happen. You make your plans and you hear God laughing. Life changes. This is true. This is the uncertainty of life. Life is full of surprises. And isn't this true? Oftentimes the surprises in life are very difficult ones. You're surprised by difficulty and by tragedy and pain or Suffering. We are, this is the portrait Solomon paints, we are all walking on very thin ice. And we could fall through at any moment. Some of you have experienced that. Not only is life difficult, we don't necessarily see the difficulty coming. Which is vanity. Listen to these verses from our section today. 9 verse 12. For man does not know his time. Like fish that are taken in an evil net and like birds that are caught in a snare. So the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. 
10 verse 14. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? 11 verse 2. Give a portion to seven or even to eight, for you know not what disaster may happen on earth. 11 verse 5. As you do not know the way the Spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child, so you do not know the work of God who makes everything. And 11, verse 6. In the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. You heard those phrases. Man does not know. No man knows. You know not. You do not know. You do not know. You do not know. Life is unpredictable. And life often does not go the way we expect. Listen to 9 verse 11. Again I saw that under the sun the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge. What's he saying? Things don't go as planned. What you expect to happen doesn't always happen. The fast don't always win the race. The strong don't always win the fight. But, he says, time and chance happen to them all. That is a figure of speech. And what he is saying is apparent randomness happens to everyone. And you don't know when it's going to happen. And it doesn't make sense. Life is uncertain. Life is unpredictable. The fastest runner trips. The strongest fighter comes down with the flu. The, the most intelligent bumbles the interview. The health conscious person gets ill. The faithful church loses a member unexpectedly. The godly parent suffers a rebellious child. The wealthy businessman loses everything. There's just no guarantees. There's just zero guarantees. Life is vanity in that way. So that is the perspective here. Life is unpredictable. Therefore, right, we could use some advice. And we could use some encouragement, which is where the professor is headed. So let's move on to his practical advice. If life is uncertain and life is unpredictable, how should we respond? What should we do? How should we live in the face of life's uncertainties? Well, last time we were in this book, Solomon's practical advice was this. Enjoy the gifts that God has given you. Life is vanity. It's uncertain. It's unpredictable. So enjoy the figure out spot. Take note of the gifts that God has given you. There's many. And enjoy them. Remember that? Yes, life is vanity. But God has given you and I gifts. And Christian he has given you the power to enjoy them. So enjoy them. Don't worship them. Don't ignore them. Don't feel guilty about having them. It's very simple advice. Just enjoy them. So this morning, he has another bit of practical advice. And here it is. 
enjoy your work and do it with all your might. I love how uncomplicated, I've said this before, how uncomplicated the wisest man in the universe is. That's Solomon. Other than Jesus, the God man, no one is more wise than Solomon. And he puts things so simply. He gives us such clear, straightforward direction. So he's saying in light of the uncertainty and the unpredictability of life, and he'll show us how this works, here's a bit of practical advice. In our text today, it is enjoy your work. Some of you are already stumbling. Enjoy your work and do it with all your might. Now, I know we read through the entire sermon text, but I'm not sure that you would have heard that practical advice coming through. So let me just take a minute to show you in our text why I think that's the practical advice here. I'm going to try to persuade you that that's the practical advice here. So look at the first verses of our text. And then look at the last verses of our text. Okay, those are the, the bookends of the text we're looking at. You have an opening statement and a closing statement, which in any body of text is usually going to tell you what's in the middle, what the whole thing is about. So if we look at the opening and the closing, you'll see that this text is about work. Look at 9 verse 10, just the first half of the verse. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. That's the opening statement, and it's about work. Now jump down to the closing statement. It's given in chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. And I'll break it down by just quoting from the first half of verses 1 and 2 and 6. Because those are the instructions in the verse, not the reasons, just the instructions. 11 1, cast your bread upon the waters. 11.2, give a portion to seven or even to eight. 11.6, in the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. That's the closing statement, and it's also about work. So get work in the forefront of your mind right now. Whatever that is for you, Get work in the forefront of your mind. For those of you who do not know what work is, it is vigorous effort. That's the father of a son that just said amen. Work is, right, because this is a big deal these days. We're trying to train, right, something has happened, something's gone horribly wrong. We're trying to train young men these days, at least us Christians are, to work hard, right? To work hard. So work is vigorous effort. So the advice here in light of the uncertainty and unpredictability of life is in regards to your work. So what do you do for a living? This is what, these are the kinds of things you want to get in the forefront of your mind. What do you do for a living? What, what, is, what is your job? If you have a job right now, that is an easy place to start. For some of you, your daily work, for many of you as I look out, your daily work is something you don't get paid for. Those of you who are moms and are full-time homemakers, this would be you. You work. Of course you work. You work 24-7. I think someone 
once made the mistake of asking my wife, do you work or stay home with your kids? That's the wrong A and B, right? No, I work. It's, it's not A, it's not B, it's, it's C, I'm going to punch you in the face. It's both, right? As, as if for you moms, for a moment, as, as if for you moms, right, managing your home and, and running your house and being a helper to your husband and loving and raising your children as if, as if that's not work. It's, it's much more work than what your husbands do for eight hours or more a day. So what is on your to-do list? What occupies your time? What, what projects are left undone? Get these kinds of things in, in your mind. Kids, we have lots of kids here. What are the responsibilities that your mom and dad have given you? Or what are the chores, right? Chores. You could reword this that you are to enjoy your chores. Wow. Is that even possible? It is. We'll see. Enjoy your chores and do your chores with all your might. So everybody, get all that in the forefront of your mind right now. And then hear Solomon's practical advice. Enjoy your work. Enjoy your work and do it with all your might. So that's two things. So enjoy your work. The first section of our text says, I've read it a couple times, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. But now I want you to listen to the context of that verse. The context is enjoyment, which, which we're going to see if we read verse 10 with the previous three verses. So let me read to you not just 10, but 7 through 10. And hear the context of enjoyment. Go. Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. So do you hear the context? It's joy, isn't it? Work, just this, it it might be revolutionary for some of you. Work and the ability to do work is a gift from God. Think about your work this way. Your work and the ability to do the work is one of the gifts that God has given you And what do we do with gifts? We ought to enjoy the gifts that God has given us. Work is not evil. I think I've heard Christians even talk that way. Work is not evil. Work is not a necessary evil. Work is good. Work is not just a means to an end. It is a means to an end, but it is also an end in and of itself. In your Bible, work first shows up in Genesis chapter 2, not Genesis chapter 3 which is significant. In Genesis 2:15 it says, "The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it." So that is that is what we would call pre-fall Adam in paradise, he's in the garden, he is in heaven on earth 
if you like. And what are we told that he is doing there? He is working. In the next chapter, Genesis chapter 3, most of you know the story, Adam sinned and everything became corrupted, including his work. So work is cursed, but work is not evil. That's very important. The workload has increased. The work has been made more difficult. The, the outcome of your work is not as predictable as it might have been in paradise. But the work is good and it is a gift to be enjoyed. Which is why not only in 9, 7 through 10, Solomon says elsewhere things that should make sense now that we've already read. Like in chapter 2, verse 24. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. Or chapter 3, verse 22. So I saw there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work. For that is his lot. So enjoy your work. That's the first part of his practical advice. Here's the second part. Do it with all your might. Enjoy your work. And then do it with all your might. Now, I think if we were to look that that is what most of the verses in between the opening and closing statements on work, that's what they're all about. About working with all of your might. We've read all of them. We're not going to take the time to go through each of them. But let me just show you a couple things before moving on to the professor's encouragement. First, listen to what was clearly said in the first verse of our section. 9 verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might. That simply means work hard. Work hard. What's the opposite of working hard? Laziness. There are few things in the Bible that are looked down on more than laziness. But we joke about it. But we tease about it. The Bible brings it up as a tremendous sin. Rather, what is the opposite? Hard work. We should work with our might. Do it, the work, with your might. With all your body. With all your soul. With all your mind. And with all your strength. Whatever the work is that God has gifted to you, the expectation from God for Him to be honored and glorified is that you do it with all your might, with all your heart, fully invested, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, for, listen to His logic, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol, which means the grave. He's not talking about heaven or hell. He's talking about death, the end of this life on this earth. To which you are going. So this is his argument for working with all your might. This is, this is of course, important. This is his argument for working with all your might. Life is unpredictable. No one knows how many days you have left 
which means you don't know how many days you have left to work on this earth. You see, it's seeing it as a good thing. You don't know when the ice is going to break through. You don't know how many days you have left. So, work. Who knows how many days you have left to sweat and to fix and to clean and to manage and to repair and to get tired. Who knows how many days you have left. Life is unpredictable. So make the most of every day. And do your work with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. That's Solomon's logic. Look at verse 10. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work in Sheol to which you are going. Solomon goes on and he gives examples of working with all your might. In chapter 10, he rattles off proverb after proverb having to do with working wisely. In other words, working with your might is not just about spending yourself physically. It's about being spent mentally. Not just about working hard. This is about working smart. Wisdom doesn't save you. Work doesn't save you. That's not his point, but it is essential to use wisdom in your work. So let me give you some samples from the text. Chapter 9, verse 17 and 18. Listen, he's talking about working wisely. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Chapter 10, verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. That's the same thing he's saying in chapter 9, verse 18. We might say a bad apple ruins the whole bunch. A little folly goes a long way. So avoid folly. Avoid not working wisely. Work hard, work smart. Derek Kidner said, it takes far less to ruin something than it does to create it. Think about that. Think about how hard it is and things in your life. Have you had this experience where you've worked so hard and it's taken so long to build something? And in one word, it comes crashing down. This is important. It's important that we use wisdom. That's a theme throughout his entire book. Chapter 10, verse 2. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. This is not a reference to modern American political leanings. <laughs> I'm surprised I haven't seen that on a shirt. 
That's not what the right and left are referring to here. The, the right in the Bible is the, the place of power and the place of preference. The right is the place of favor and salvation. The, the, the right is the, the place where you're, you're working hard, where you're working wise. That's where we want to be. In your work, honor God. So that's the practical advice. Throughout 9 Verse 10, all the way through chapter 11, verse 6. Enjoy the work that God has given to you. Not only enjoy the work that God has given to you, but do your work with all your might, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Three more verses. In 10, verse 12. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. Work wisely. Verse 15. The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. This is a fool working. He's working, 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 and he's getting nowhere. Verse 18. Through sloth or laziness, The roof sinks in, and through indolence, the house leaks. So, the perspective, the reality, is that life is vanity, life is uncertain, life is unpredictable. No one knows how many days they have left. So, the practical advice is not to fret, not to worry, not to be anxious, but to, in our text today, enjoy the work that God has given you. Do that. Enjoy the work that God has given you. And when you work, do it with all your might, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. Now, in conclusion, let's get to the encouragement. That's the perspective. That's the advice. But we need encouragement. This is where we're helped to do these difficult things that God calls us to do. We have to be given courage. You know, it's not, it's not so easy. Haven't you had somebody give you counsel or advice or tell you what to do and they're telling you to do the right thing and you know that and there's no question in your mind and, and, and you say something back to them like, that's not easy to do. I hear you. I, I agree with you. But saying it and talking about it and what? Doing it are two different things. Well, God is good. He is our Hebrew says. He is our helper. He tells us how to live. He doesn't just tell you how to live. He gives you everything that you need to live that way. And so, perspective is tough in the book of Ecclesiastes. The counsel is tough, but the encouragement is great. And it runs throughout. I don't think you'll be surprised by it. We need encouragement to do this. Let me read again that quote I read at the beginning from Walter Kaiser about this section. In this final section, we are given practical advice and taught how to apply the insights gained from this new perspective on life set forth in the previous three sections. And then he said this, and here's where we are now with encouragement. The righteous. I hope that's you. I hope you're a believer. I hope you're a Christian today. The righteous must 
be encouraged, lest the puzzles that still remain in the mystery of God are allowed to dishearten them. So what should we do? How how should we live? How should we cope as Christians? We're tempted in, in light of uncertainty and unpredictability. We're tempted to not take this advice. It's hard to slow down and, 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 and count our blessings and enjoy them. It's hard to enjoy the, the work that we hate. It's hard to, it's hard to do our work with, with all of our might, not just when the boss is looking, but when, when no one's looking. These are, these are very difficult things to do. So how, how, am I, how am I going to do this? I'm tempted to anxiety when I think about the unpredictability and the uncertainty of life, you might say. Maybe you're tempted to depression. You might grow disheartened or discouraged. Many people not understanding what the point of Ecclesiastes is have read the book and and left disheartened and discouraged or hoping that Solomon didn't mean what he said when he talks about how life is vanity. Some people distract themselves. That's not a good solution. Life is vanity. I'm anxious. I'm panicking about the uncertainties. I hate that there are no guarantees. I've had the carpet pulled out from underneath me. I don't want the carpet pulled out again. So some people distract themselves. I'm just not going to think about it. I watched a bit of a documentary this past week, and one of the people in the documentary was a, was a man who had suffered greatly. He had suffered unjustly. He was not a Christian, and he was talking about the randomness of his life and how unexpected things happened and uncertain things happened and he couldn't see it coming and he had grown jaded and didn't know what the future held and he frankly admitted that his way of dealing with it was to not think about it. To distract himself. To not face this reality that life is vanity. That it's uncertain that there are no guarantees, that it is unpredictable. Solomon won't let you do that in his book. You wonder why he brings it up over and over and over again. You think you're finally coming up for a breath of fresh air and then he pulls you back down under the water. Don't forget how uncertain and unpredictable life is. The twists, the turns, the difficulty, the pain, the suffering. He's not telling you something that you don't already know, but he's telling you something that you don't want to think about. He's telling you something that you want to distract yourself from. So we can't distract ourselves. Some people grab on to some philosophy that claims to solve the riddle. But what is it that Solomon encourages us with? Look with me at chapter 11, verse 5. It's subtle, but it's the same kind of thing he's been saying throughout his book. The very end of our text in chapter 11, verse 5. As you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. Pause. 
who's reminding us of what we do not know. We know more about this now than then. Still so much we don't know. They didn't know anything, a complete mystery. How is a child put together in his mother's womb? He says, you do not know. You do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. So you do not know the work of God who makes everything. There's a time and a season for everything. Everything is beautiful in its time. God has a plan. Let me summarize verse 5. You do not know. God knows. This is the encouragement. You don't know. From your end, life is uncertain and life is unpredictable. Do you think it's that way on God's end? How many times, a quiz, how many times has God been surprised? God has never been surprised. He's never been surprised. God knows. Solomon is consistent in this book. It is the same encouragement. It first showed up in chapter 3. It is the same encouragement over and over again. It is the second part of this book's theme that I said in the beginning. Life is vanity, yet what? Yet God is sovereign. God knows. God has a plan. God is in control. God is sovereign over all things. And gives his people the power to find joy in the vanity. So what is it in 11 verse 5 and throughout this book that Solomon is using to encourage us with? It's the sovereignty of God. It is the exhaustive sovereignty of God. Life is unpredictable. Life is uncertain. God is. Is certain. God is certain. That may sound small, but it's huge. That may seem like just one part of one little verse in the middle of a bunch of other hard verses, but it's huge. The sovereignty of God. Because. This is how it works. Because God is sovereign. Because God is in control. I can handle. Whatever happens. In this life. Because. I receive it. From his loving hand. That's the encouragement. You call this a gift, God, that you're giving me, but it's hard, it's painful, it's difficult. It's a gift. This work that I don't want to do and I want to move on to the next thing, and it's a gift. 
The ability to enjoy the gifts God has given you. The ability to do the work that God has given you. The gifts are from God. The work is from God. And the ability to enjoy them and to do them with all your might. It's all a gift from God. If God is sovereign over all things. If God is in complete and total control, and there is not, as R.C. Sproul said, a maverick molecule in the entire universe, but everything is as it is, then that means that you and I can receive anything that comes our way as from the loving hand of God. Even if it's difficult even if it's horrendous, even if it's painful, and it most definitely will often be unexpected and unpredicted. The goodness and the greatness of God is all that is certain in this world. God is certain. His glory is certain. Christian, your good is certain. Heaven is certain. God does not move. God does not change. God does not fail. God does not fluctuate. He doesn't shift. But everything else at the end of the day is completely and utterly unpredictable. Everything. Except God. If you're here this morning and you are a Christian. This should make you glad. That should be the effect. This should make you glad. You know God. You believe the gospel. It's not just a story. It's a true story. And you believe the story that. Jesus came. And suffered. And died and rose from the dead in the place of sinners so that a sinner like you could be reconciled to God. You believe that. And so Jesus is your Lord. He rules whatever he wants, what you want. He's your savior. He's the one who has rescued you from yourself and from hell from the wrath of God. He's your treasure. All, all your happiness is, is bound up in Him. Every bit of happiness is tied to Him in some way. Without Him, there's no happiness. He is your greatest treasure. And God, I know Mark Stevenson talked to you just weeks ago about this, and God has brought you to that point. He has brought you to that place. You may even heard that good news before and it didn't mean anything. And then one day, God, what Ezekiel says, he took your heart of stone and he gave you a heart of flesh and it sunk in. He gave you eyes to see. He gave you ears to hear. And you freely gave up everything else to follow Christ. So if you're a Christian and that's what God has done in your life and you're here knowing God and loving God and believing that he has revealed himself to us in this book. 
then you are made glad when you are hearing or reminded that your God is in control of all things. That everything that comes your way ultimately is from the hands of a God who loves you and cares for you and knows what is best for you. And sometimes that is breaking your heart so that he can bind it up again. Sometimes that is allowing you to experience pain and suffering and and even share, we're told, in the sufferings of his son Jesus so that you would love God more and know his mercy more and know his affection more and know his salvation more. Every drop of suffering you experience in this life increases the flood of joy in heaven. So if you're a Christian and you hear this, it should make you glad. If you're here this morning and you are not a Christian, this should make you, I don't know, humbled? If God is at work, curious? Are you, are you curious? Is there a God who is sovereign over all things? Is there a God who determined you'd even sit in the seat you're in and listen to the words you're listening to, surrounded by the people you're surrounded to? Is there a God who's ordained this exact moment for you when you would hear his good news preached? If there is, if, just let the if in. Are you curious Are you humbled to think, regardless of how you might feel about what God is doing? Are you humbled to hear that God is doing? That there is a God? And that if there is a God, most definitely you're accountable to Him? Christian, back to the Christian. Remember the sovereignty of God and enjoy your work and the ability to do your work as a gift from him and do it with all your might. What Colossians chapter three, verse 17 says. Which is a sort of New Testament Repeating of what we're reading in Ecclesiastes. Colossians chapter 3. And whatever you do in word and deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And then verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You're working for the Lord and not for men. You work for your employer 
but there's someone over your employer you work for. It's the Lord. Unbeliever. Back to and ending now with the unbeliever. Submit yourself to the one who is in absolute control of your life and destiny. Submit yourself to him. If you're here today and you would like to talk about that, please come up and see me after service. I'd like to talk with you. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for the work that you've given us to do. God, for those of us who are able, which as I look out is most, if not all, thank you for the ability that you have given us to work. You've given us bodies and souls. You've given us minds, hearts. So that we can spend ourselves in this life. So that we can work. So that we can sweat. So that we can tire. So that we can labor. So that we can serve you and serve others. And may we see all this, receive all this as from your loving hand and view whatever work you have given us in a new light. When we grumble, God, convict us. When we complain, convict us. And restore in us a heart of gratitude. And give us by your spirit the help we need to do our work with all our might. We ask this in the great name of your son, Jesus. Amen.